The spin is supported by NatWest. Why? Because NatWest loves cricket. The skills it teaches and the communities it creates and want it to be easy for everyone to get involved. To find out about how NatWest is helping make cricket open to all, search NatWest Cricket. Unlike Jofra Archer, I didn't get a week off in Barbados after the World Cup, which is a good job because it's been a busy week. We think our Irish cricket correspondent Barry Glendenning is doing fine since his team were bowled out for 38 at Lords. We haven't actually seen him. But his Twitter account is as snarky as ever, so that's a good sign. Um, this week it's time to talk about the Ashes. So representing England on today's show, we have Vic Marks. He's the man I always turn to when I need reassurance. So he was obviously the perfect person to sit next to at the World Cup final. And our Australian insight comes from Jeff Lemon, who has spent the last couple of weeks all around the country, including watching the Australia hopefuls down at the Aegeus Bowl and then squeezing in the women's Ashes. And frankly, I don't know how he's still standing. So many questions. What on earth was going on at Lords last week? Who's made the Ashes squads? Which all-rounders will play at Edgbaston? Why have England's women been so outclassed? And how do you pronounce Australian cricketer Marnus Labashane Labaskagni? Labaskagni? All the answers to those questions and more coming up right now. It's the spin! I'm Emma John and this is The Spin, the cricket podcast that hasn't taken off its World Cup replica shirt for two weeks now, which may be why my guests are sitting a bit further away from me than usual. Around the boundary of our oval table for this Ashes preview, we have Vic at Long On and Jeff at Cover. I'm at my usual position in Cow Corner and a picture of Mike Atherton, an England legend despite never winning the Ashes, still adorns our table, awaiting his first guest appearance whenever that might be. The Ashes are just days away and the first test this year is taking place at Edgbaston. So, as is customary, it's time to grab your fancy dress costume and head to the Holly stand. The loosener today is simple. What's your fancy dress costume of choice? Jeff looks like he might have one already in his head. Well, I, I mean, you, you gave me the hint. I thought if I'm going to be spending the day in the Eric Holly's stand, what better to do than go dressed as Eric Holly's? <laughs> and see who amongst the patrons of that stand will recognise the, the great leg spinner who did a lot more things besides bowling Bradman for a duck because you don't get a stand named after you just for that. Took about 40,000 wickets up there. So how do you dress up as Eric Collies? Look, I haven't thought that far ahead. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, you, there's a lot of just old-timey replica kit around, but, but I'd be prepared to undergo some radical plastic surgery just to you know, make myself look more like Eric Collies. <laughs> Um, I'm just looking at some photos of Eric Hollies. He does have um, the, the kind of shirt unbuttoned quite a long way down. He's a, I think he's, he's, he's like a half Richie Benno. He's, he's on the way there. Um, so there's that. There's a lot of brill cream involved. So I'll have to straighten my hair. But, you know, there are ways. 2,323 first class wickets. He's, it's exhausting it's, just reading them. He's a bit like Shane Warren with a bit of googly. What are you going, Asbeck? <sighs> Well, I think I have to. I think I have to go as a monk, really, because <laughs> a I've got the haircut. Actually, the only fancy dress kit I've got at home, which cost about nine ninety nine, is of a monk. 
And I've always had this sort of fantasy about all this fancy dress stuff of monks or probably nuns. If you're a nun and you go to a cricket match at Birmingham on a Saturday, it must be quite taxi. If you're a mm. real nun and everyone's shouting, you, oh, it's brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> so I'd like to be so convincing that... Oh. Yeah. So in, in all that outreach that the ECB have been doing with trying to get different communities involved, they haven't thought about the nuns, the poor nuns who've been well, unable they... to comfortably go to the cricket for years because everyone keeps pouring beer over them. Exactly. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, poor nuns. What better way to get our batsmen informed than a gentle warm-up against Test Newbies Ireland, they said. Perfect preparation for the Ashes, they said. Last week, Lords played host to our European neighbours, and in between jokes about whether either team had worked out their backstop strategy, there was some actual cricket. Joe Root won the toss and chose to field, and for the next two days, that's as good as it got for Joe Root, wasn't it, Pick? Yes, he was quite touchy by the end of it, I think. I mean, in a curious way, it was quite a useful exercise because England had been, and I quote, <coughs> so embarrassingly bad, mm. well, I think even Trevor Bayliss said that, on the first two days, that we suddenly had a really good cricket match on our hands briefly. So they were put on their mettle and they had to perform and then they did against the Irish side that is not that good. So they could eventually get something out of it because they put themselves in such a dire situation that they had to play under pressure, which is going to be, you know, tenfold as the Ashes gets underway. <laughs> so this makes it sound like you're not giving the Irish bowlers too much credit for the 85 all out in the first innings. Well, no, I, well, I don't want to belittle that. I mean, I'm a, quite a fan of Tim Murtagh, especially. I mean, he, he showed the virtues. It'll be interesting when we get to the Ashes, whether Australia use their version of Tim Murtagh, who's much, much quicker, namely Peter Siddle, because he has some of the virtues of a Tim Murtagh. Yeah. He's not swinging it quite so much, but he, he knows where it's going. So, no, I, I mean, Tim Murtagh was terrific in those conditions, and he bowled like he's bowled for about the last 15 years for either Surrey or Middlesex. Uh, and if you move the ball, and he was moving the ball, it doesn't matter whether you're 75 MPH or 85 or even 95 MPH. So I'm not wanting to belittle that. He was very um, sort of generous about it. He said this was a perfect time to play England with a bit of a World Cup hangover. But the odd thing that's come out of it is England batted so badly in that first innings that there's all sorts of potential upheavals before the Ashes test. We don't know what order they're going to come at. Mm. At Edgbaston, as a consequence of looking so frail in that one match at Lords. But, I mean, we quite enjoyed it the game yeah well because it was so it was surreal I mean 85 all out first innings lead of over 100 for Ireland I mean at the end of the second day this match would seem to be absolutely in the mm. balance and everyone there was a spring in the step of everyone going there and also, it was all over yeah, by lunchtime by the end of the second day I had completely changed my allegiance I mean I oh really, you became Irish <laughs> you know how with Brexit you know a lot of people were kind of looking to see if they had any Irish people back yep. in their family so they could get a passport I, that didn't happen to me until the second day of the Lord's Test when suddenly. I suddenly thought do you know what I'd really like them to win it's just unusual for me to not want England to win but I really well, I didn't Jeff want might have to liked them to win I don't know well it would have been fun um, I mean, the first day was definitely fun. You know, mark a dare to dream, if you will. It's, <laughs> oh, you've got all the Irish puns. You had one that you tweeted, murder I? on the dance floor. Murder on the dance floor. Which yeah. only works if you have an Aussie accent, I've just realised now. If you Timmy murder. You've got to say Timmy murder. Here he comes. <laughs> oh, five for 13 on this deck. That's unbelievable bowling. Um, I think 
what Vic's saying about um, the, the relative quality of the team is basically that they have decent bowling and they have pretty fragile batting. So, But that's okay because England have pretty fragile England batting England also too. have fragile batting, but they have players who are good enough that they will come good at some point. Someone will make a score. So Jason Roy makes a score and fundamentally that's all they needed. I, I thought when Ireland were bowled out 100 ahead, I thought they would lose from there because I thought it's not enough. They're not going to chase a lot in the second innings. I didn't expect them to be bowled out for 38, but I thought that if it were you know anything over 120 or so, they'd probably struggle. And you see that with the emerging teams, like with Afghanistan in the World Cup. It's usually their batting that's more frail than the bowling and fielding side of things they can get right. You know, they can at least contain, even if they can't um, sort of rip teams out, but batting under pressure and particularly chasing, you know, they, they, they would have been much better off defending 100 than trying to chase 100, I think. And Jack Leach. <laughs> and Jack Leach. Yeah. Well, that, that was Jack ridiculous. <laughs> he had, didn't he have a, um, a season average uh, coming into that match? Four. Four, 4.66. Yeah. yeah. Top wow. score nine. And a bit of mumbling that poor Jack, he's lost. He, he actually is quite a tenacious batsman or has been. But he got hit on the head by Melanie Morkel last year, concussed. And that affected his confidence hugely. And he, he sort of said, talked about that. Mm. So he was as amazed as everyone else. Oh, he definitely was. He, in um, his press conference, he, it, was, it was overflowing with amazement. <laughs> yeah. um, but he won't do that against Australia for a couple reasons. One, he's, he's not, not in team. the squad. <laughs> Which is Two, harsh, isn't it? You know, he said, well, I, you know, I played Boyd Rankin pretty well. And Boyd Rankin is tall and gets a bit of bounce, but at about... 79. Mm. The Aussies, if they pick their quick bowlers that are tall, get a bit of bounce at about 91. Mm. <laughs> he wouldn't like that so much, <laughs> nor would anyone else. Um, I, I, think, I think the Crickviz guys tracked that as being the second most error-filled innings of worth that many or more ever on their database, <laughs> as in, in terms of number of false shots yeah, played. Yeah, but they so. haven't been going very long, have they? It's <laughs> <laughs> about 05, I think. They've got a fair trove of... So no one scored that many that badly, except someone else. Maybe it was Tino Best, but, you know, one of, one of those um, types of innings. Uh, what about the wicket? Because um, Joe Root has had a little pop at the groundsman since, mm. which seems a bit unfair well, on Irishman Carl McDermott um, <laughs> or as Barry Glendening <laughs> called him in our last podcast Agent McDermott <clears throat> well I thought that was an example that he's tetchy a bit and I mean he's, he's usually extremely accommodating Joe Root and I'm a great fan but I thought he was uneasy after that match partly because he wasn't getting many runs and dropping and, catches well he caught a lot in the second he did months. actually he did get his confidence back with yeah, catching yeah. Uh, and it was green, and it suited Murta beautifully. It's the sort of pitch, curiously, maybe a little bit exaggerated, that England would love to play five test matches against Australia on. Who won the toss? England. Hmm. Okay. So, so they chose complaining about it being too green on day one and suiting Tim Murta. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm not defending Joe here. Mm. And the, I mm. thought substandard. I mean, that yeah. that shows that's quite a dig in the ribs. That. It is, isn't it? So I don't know what we're going to get when we play Australia there. Um, I guess slightly less grass, but they they leave the grass on for a couple of reasons. One is they try and get more pace, more green grass, more pace, which is usually a good thing in a cricket pitch. And Murta got it to move off the pitch as well early on, uh, despite cloudless skies. I, I have a theory on this Joe Root pop, though. I, mm -hmm. I, re I reckon in part he was being accommodating because I think he was trying to get a little bit of rope for Ireland as well, given that they'd just been shot yeah, at for yeah. 38 on the last day. I, I thought part of what he was doing was 
Def- as yeah. the generous host to say that it was the conditions were too hard to be reasonably expected to bat well in for any player, even if they took their time. Well, and- that's a typically generous uh, view of it, and and defending his own batsman a little bit. Yeah. So it all added to the you know spice, but it was a quick Test match. I can't believe it'll be quite like that when mm. Australia play there. It's great if you're on staff. Terrible for freelancers. You can't be going around having two day Test matches. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't mentioned that Bairstow, Moeen and Wokes made a combined three-way duck in the middle order, which I think sounds like a Heston Blumenthal pitch. <laughs> three-way duck. duck. Three ways. <laughs> but that's... One duck stuffed inside another duck. <laughs> it sounds like a, some Roman sort of festival, yeah. doesn't it? That is, or debauched dining club. But anyway, go on. So, yeah, I mean, that's not good. Well, no, not ideal. As, as they say. Uh, but actually, you mentioned those three. If I was in the England camp I think I'd actually be more worried about Rory Burns Bairstow might come off you never know Moen likewise I mean he looks oh, he's, a lesser he's in, batsman now but he'll surprise you somewhere he's I hope. In shocking Nick though this is he? the Guardian's Moen out <laughs> <laughs> I would say the same thing if he were here, and he would. I don't think he could dispute it. He couldn't say. He well, wouldn't look dispute at all the runs it. He spends his life as a cricketer. Saying, I'm not really good. I'm not oh, very just, good, really. I'm just, just the second spinner. Just the, yes. I shouldn't really be opening yeah. the I'm batting. I'm a second spinner and a tenth batsman. He'll yeah. say. Yes. Uh, can I offer you some comfort? Yeah. Uh, while you were there watching this, I was in Southampton watching Australia play Australia, which had the benefit that Australia was going to win. win. <laughs> but basically about 19 batsmen made about 19 runs between them over the course of the match. And there were a couple of 50s in the, the respective second innings. But that was a very short... That was over in two and a half days yeah. as well. I mean, they, they'd asked for a gr- green pitch to yes. practice on. And Hampshire said, all right, then, <laughs> if, you, if you must. Last question on Ireland... Was the Lord's Test a good advert for Irish cricket? They did have England on the ropes on day one, but they also did finish with their worst ever innings score at Lord's. Well, they've only played three Test matches. They're going to make their worst ever innings score at some point. Probably, <laughs> Get it out of the way early. They probably won't make it again. You know, there are not many teams have uh, gone that low. Twenty six is it the lowest New Zealand? Well, it was, it was a great advert for two days, and you worry about the makeup of their team. In that, there's so many old men there who can't go on much longer. So there's going to have to be a overhaul before too long. I thought it was a good advert for cricket more generally. In that, briefly, although it had this bizarre well, start and end, people were rolling up and they were enjoying it. It was a certain amount of novelty attached to it. And, you know, they need access to playing against the top teams. And this was a slightly bizarre place to do it, a bizarre time to do it. And they Mm. would have got something from it. So I think, by and large, it was a positive event. What is the saving grace was that they had their calamitous batting collapse at the end of the match Mm. and not the beginning of it. Yep, you're going to have days like that. You know, Afghanistan got wiped out in a couple of days against India in their first Test match. When Zimbabwe got done in two days by South Africa last year, I think it was. And even good teams have those days, you know. (laughs) And it takes people decades to win normally at Lords. And they, for two and a half days, they look like they might do it. But in in the the last couple of years, we've had Australia bowled out for 60 at Trent Bridge. We had England bowled out for 59, was it, in New Zealand 18 months ago. So it's not just a thing that teams that are a bit further down the rankings are the ones who will be monstered. Cricket can be extremely one-sided, and that often is. And good teams get monstered if things go against them on the day. On to the Ashes. 
Here is England's squad for the first Ashes test. Joe Root, Moeen Alley, James Anderson, Joffrey Archer, Johnny Bairstow, Stuart Broad, Rory Burns, Joss Butler, Sam Curran, Joe Denley, Jason Roy, Ben Stokes, Ollie Stone and Chris Wokes. But first, let's talk about Ben Stokes being reappointed as vice-captain, which I presume is the first step on the official route to the knighthood he will eventually have coming for winning England their first World Cup. He's had his third act. The redemption arc is complete now. Does this mean we're never allowed to mention Bristol again? Well, we can mention Bristol, but you can't go beyond Bristol. (laughs) We talk about the Bristol incident, (laughs) and that's it. Yeah. They were obviously keen to get him back. It's a token position in that he won't have any more or less to say. He, he's part of the senior management team, I think, yep. as is Josh Butler, who he's replaced, and Butler's influence will be just the same. But I think they think a couple of things. One is that um, the more responsibility you give Stokes, the better he is. And I suspect, too, they're thinking Josh Butler, uh, being vice-captain is a terrible job, really. <laughs> I've done it most of my life when I was playing <laughs> cricket. Um, Josh Butler, there's no great virtue in him being vice-captain in both forms of the game. <laughs> he's earmarked... Virtue no, and vice, very good. Yeah, <laughs> He's earmarked to be the um, next one-day captain. So there's a bit of forward planning there as well. But it is a sign that, you know, we are now officially moving on. And it's a bizarre test Mm. in that sense. We've got three Aussies coming back who've been absolutely slated over the last 12 months. And uh, we've got Ben Stokes coming back. And what a lovely, forgiving place we are. The Birmingham Miscreants Club. (laughs) I was going to ask if we thought that this might now be the end of the kind of nicey-nicey. We had the nicey-nicey World Cup. That's Mm -hmm. what I'm dubbing Mm -hmm. it. Uh, There was lots of sportsmanship, everyone being very lovely to each other. Uh, But it feels like even this week with Josh Hazelwood, trolling Roy or winding him up in the press I did, I must did you not really, did, did well you he only said I think he's not going to think he might struggle with it I think, I think that's, that's pretty standard pre-ashes gentle pre-ashes fair. We've, we've gone beyond that mm. before yeah but um, I th- with you on a broad thing I think it could be quite incendiary along the way not just because of the ashes but I think you've got two groups of essentially pretty tired players who are getting near... The, the World Cup was sapping for both teams in their right. ways. And I think, therefore, their their fuses will be shorter than normal. So I don't think it would take too much for mm. something to happen to sort of tip it over, and then we've got, of course, Ashes, was Carnage, War. But most of the Australian test team weren't in the World Cup. You know, there won't be many... Oh, there won't be a lot of overlap. Warner, Smith... I mean, Stark may not play the first test. Um, you know, Cummins, Lyon, Lyon. I mean, Lyon's well, half of them. Lyon didn't play a lot in the World Cup. So, okay. In terms of who's exhausted, you know, who's actually got the? I mean, Kawaja would be the one, but he's he's the least tetchy player on the team. He's pretty quiet usually. Well, I agree with Vic. The fact that Joe Root sounds tetchy is mm. always a bad sign. That's he seems like he should be the least tetchy person mm. out there. The, the chirpy pixie woodland captain of the England cricket team. You can't talk about the England captain like that. <laughs> Come over here. <laughs> Talking of Joey, he it looks like he has now been persuaded to bat at number three, mm. despite his own obvious reservations. Has he been worn down by Trevor Bayliss and the press telling him he should do it? Is it the right call? It, it might put him off because he's the one who has this fixation yeah. about it. I mean, if you look at it rationally, it makes... Absolutely zero difference. England are two wickets down in the first five overs every test match they play. Like, that's just how it works. Their top order has been garbage for years. I mean, it's been Alistair Cook plus garbage, and then it's been garbage plus garbage since he left. Um, I don't want to be unkind, but I am. 
being. Root has to come in and in the early overs every single time. But he, he might as well be opening the batting. It doesn't it wouldn't make a difference. He's out there in the first few overs more often than not. So who cares if it's three or four? Well, that's, there's a certain logic there, but not necessarily in Root's mind. Hmm. And my feeling is, it's a bizarre change of course after one match against Ireland. Hmm. And I just think, actually, that he should bat where he wants to bat. Uh, where and, is he going to be most productive and feel comfortable? Yeah, exactly. So Especially it's no use he... to England if Rude yeah. bats at three reluctantly and averages 12. Right. I agree. I think especially since he looked like he mm. was lacking confidence or form or something mm. as the World Cup went on. Well, he, he played brilliantly in the World Cup until he got to Lords, where he, he had a nasty final where he was out of kilter. And then he actually played OK in the second innings against Ireland. But he wasn't scoring as quickly as normal. He was mm. looking a bit careworn. And I think my worry would be that he's going into this match a little diffident about his batting. And he's our best batsman. Because he's our best batsman, mm. I think, well, who's the Australian's best batsman? Well, statistically, it's Steve Smith without a doubt. Where does he bat? Happens to bat four. Because mm. he likes batting at four. Right. And I think the same should apply to Root if that's what he wants to do. I'm yeah. still not absolutely convinced they'll come out in that order. I don't know. It's also a very boring, old, stale, recycled Australian thing that, that Bayless is trotting well, out, which is, well, you know, your best batsman bats at three. That's who we are. Brian right. Lara batted at three. Don Bradman batted at three. Ricky Ponting batted at three. Case closed. Well, who Ian Chow. We must get Ian Chow because he's yeah. very big on that as right. well. Yeah. But so Steve Ward didn't bat at three and Alan Baller didn't bat at yeah. three and Steve Smith doesn't bat at three. Not much. And it's a generational thing that you mm. will get all of the guys in that generation in Australian cricket will make this point as mm. if it's self-evident your best batsman bats at three. Well, why? If the ball's seeming around and they're going to nick off and you could have them come in at five and make a hundred because they're coming in after 30 overs you know. Uh, the other point Jeff was saying is right is, is, is try not to get hung up about it it doesn't make that much difference you've got to go out and bat. I mean Joe Denley they're talking about Joe Denley I thought they might stick Jason Roy at four if they were going to shift it around but they're talking about Denley possibly batting mm. at four we, I don't know he's done that a bit he's, he's been all over the shop. But they've only just started one Jason Roy experiment you yeah. can't then have another Jason Roy experiment he's well, been picked to open because he's confident. Yeah. Jimmy Anderson, Moeen, Archer Broad, Curran, Stokes, Stone and Wokes. That's a lot of bowlers. If Moeen plays as a spinner and Stokes is the all-rounder and it looks like Joffre Archer isn't going to be picked, who is England's best bowling lineup from Anderson, Broad, Curran, Stone and Wokes? Well, Anderson will play if he's fit. So you've only got one place left mm. and they'll be leaving three pace bowlers out if you count Curran in that category. Yeah, look, Anderson will play, Broad has, has to play given how he bowled at Lords. Well, that's Lords. the team done then. And Wokes well, has to play because well, of how they... he bowled at Lords and he's the Brummie Botham and, you know, he'll get up there at Birmingham and that's it. You've, those are your three quicks. But once Archer is fit, he has to come in and I think he has to come in with those players. You have to push Mo into seven and squeeze some of the dross out of the top order, you know, whether that's Burns or Denley or whoever's not performing. I don't think they'll bother that when they go to Lords one up. I mean, that's a lot of bowling you're talking about. But you need five seamers plus Moen. If it's another dead one at Lords, I mean, they're not going yeah, to have the another same. dead one. We haven't had a dead. I'm one. talking about the World <laughs> Cup games where they where they were torpid. You know, if it's that, I'm talking about 2015 when it was a road, and you know, the only reason anything happened was because Mitchell Johnson was there. If it's a surface like that, if the groundsman swings hard the other way and says, "Well, I don't want to get told off my shocking pitch again, so I have to make sure it's flat." then they'll need Archer because they'll need someone who can bowl short with some menace because, you know, Jimmy Anderson bowling short balls to Australian batsmen does not scare them. No. It scares them if it swings, though. Yes. <laughs> Jimmy Anderson bowling full balls scares them. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I suspect they will go in minus that extra little bit of pace that they sort of crave. Mm. 
But uh, somewhere along the way, they'll, you know, Archer will play possibly, Lords possibly, the next one depends how it all pans out. Mm. Um, so we always talk about England rotating their jewels, and they never usually do it. <laughs> But, now but I, think, I think they probably will this time. Yeah. I saw Archer a couple of days ago down at Hove where he popped mm. into the women's game and he was moving beautifully around the press box. He looked he looked lithe and lissom. And, um, well, we've also all seen the pictures of him dancing in Barbados. and He, he was, was looking, moving beautifully there. Yeah, he was. So there we go. That's England's Asher sorted. <laughs> After the break, we'll take a look at their opponents, Australia. And there's some good news at last for Martin Guptill. Did you know that the first official Women's Cricket World Cup was held in 1973, two years before the men's? Or that a whole new bowling technique came into play to get around hoop skirts? There are lots of things to love and learn about women's cricket. As a part of its push to get everyone playing cricket, NatWest has partnered with The Guardian Labs to tell more stories about the game. Follow them at theguardian.com forward slash natwest dash cricket. This message was paid for by NatWest. This is a spin from The Guardian, the podcast that's far too classy to boo Steve Smith and David Warner, but is ready to call for the death penalty for people who walk in front of sight screens. Vic Marks and Jeff Lemon are my guests. And Jeff, before we discuss the Australian Ashes squad, I just had to bring this up because last time you were here, I mentioned a holographic guide, which I thought was in the Adelaide Oval Museum. Mm -hmm. And a listener has been in touch to tell us it's actually at the SCG. And I know that that has probably been bugging you for a month now. (laughs) Yes, been on the tip of my tongue. (laughs) You know, Adelaide, Sydney, same, same, right? They're all just cities in Australia to you. (laughs) I also have an apology for Vic. This is the the apology section of the podcast. It's always a bit unnerving when you're going to get an apology, but you don't know what for. Uh, Mine mine to Vic is because uh, the last time I saw Vic was obviously during the very tense final overs of the World Cup final. And I, I slightly embarrassed myself in the press box by blurting out a no as Joffre Archer looked oh, yeah. like he was oh. about to run himself out, which is something you do not do in the press box. It came out of nowhere. It sort of mm. came out of the middle of my stomach. The gestures that Emma's doing right now, it's very reminiscent of Sigourney Weaver and, uh, and Alien. Yeah. You know, yeah. And I, it, I, said, I think I said something which you're not allowed to say, which is calm down. No, you didn't. You didn't. <laughs> Did I not say you, you were very great. You just turned around and you went, Emma. Oh, yes. Oh, that's, uh, <laughs> okay. But what I was meaning to say was, <laughs> I've got 700 words to write here. <laughs> and everything's changed since I last opened my laptop. <laughs> uh, it, was, uh, it was very amusing. On Saturday... Australia announced a 17-strong squad they think can retain the ashes they won at the start of last year. And here it is. Tim Payne, Cameron Bancroft, Pat Cummins, Marcus Harris, Josh Hazelwood, Travis Head, Usman Khawaja. I'm pausing because the next name is a name which I have not yet learned how to pronounce properly. I have been saying Manus Labashane. I can walk you through the entire debate over this, but why don't you finish doing the list? Nathan Lyon, Mitchell Marsh... Oh, I'm stuck again. Michael Nisa. 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 It's a soft S. James Pattinson, Peter Siddle, Steve Smith, Mitchell Stark, Matthew Wade, and David Warner. David? David Warner. <laughs> um, yes, the, uh, Manus Labaskakni is the 
South African pronunciation. He is South African by origin. Um, basically, he decided that Australians were too dumb to pronounce his name after having them get it wrong for years. And so he said, ah, oh, just call me Labashane, it's fine. And so now he says, no, no, yeah, just say it like that. It's all good. It doesn't quite sit right with me. It's basically someone saying, you don't need to learn how to say my no. name. I'll, I'll accept the general idiocy of, of those around me. And I don't think someone should have to do that. If you've got a name, that's what it is. It's not that hard. We could learn it. So I call him Lovis Cockney and, and other people think I'm stubborn because I'm refusing to get on the Labashane train. But there we are. I did get confused because I did read a quote from... Manus Labaskakne. I thought you said he was from South Africa. <laughs> well, I read a quote where he said that the only people who can pronounce his name right are the Welsh. All right. Yeah. There we go. So this squad, who are the surprises in it? Well, uh, the, the, that triumvirate of openers, the three-way contest between Bancroft, Burns and Harris to see who would be partnering Warner, um, was odd that uh, Bancroft was preferred to Burns, but it's also odd that Harris was preferred to Burns, um, given recent records as well. You know, Harris has played half a dozen tests in the home summer and made a couple of scores, made 70 odd, but didn't really impress for my money. He just always looks a little bit streaky. He's he's in the Warner mould where he's the nuggety left-hander who plays a lot of shots. And so it, it doesn't always look like he's in complete control. So, so I would have thought they have a lot of lefties as well. I would have thought even if Bancroft were to play in the 11, you would have had Burns as the reserve batsman rather than Harris because Burns can play elsewhere in the order. He's batted down at six before in the test team and he's a bit more versatile. So that one's a weird one for me. Harris had a great Sheffield Shield season and that's sort of the basis of why they picked him. He made a thousand runs in the season and made a hundred in the final and won it for Victoria. And there's been a lot of talk about having to respect domestic performance, you know, I guess a bit like the Rory Burns case where the Australian selectors have trying to make good on that promise by keeping Harris in the squad but it does that one seems a bit weird for me um, Mitch Marsh being in there I know he gets a lot of stick and it's not a, a matter of saying he's a terrible player but I'm not sure what he can necessarily add because they've got six fast bowlers you know he's he's bowling a lot better than he has been the last couple of years he's, he's looking good but they've got so many fast bowlers and most of them can bat as well so I don't see why you have the need for that extra bowler and his batting is not really top six test batting he's had plenty of goes and it's worked a couple of times you know it worked for about three months at the start of 2018 and that's the only time that we've seen it work so why do you have two vice captains because we tend to drop them quite often right so well, you, weren't, you weren't dropped Pat Cummins very often. No, but Mitchell Marsh was vice-captain and then he was dropped. Um, Josh Hazelwood was vice-captain and then he was punted out of the, the World Cup squad. Um, yeah, we go through them pretty quickly. So it's partly, it's versatility across formats. Head wasn't in the one-day squad either. Um, Cummins was. Fast bowlers are more likely to miss with injury. So there's there's that versatility. They wanted to have the bowling group and the batting group, as they and say, It's, it's not just about like having like a little prefix badge, is it? I mean, you, you, Vic, you said you've been a vice-captain. What did you do? Well, I, I usually led the team. I had when the best players were absent. <laughs> um, well, in cricket, it, there is an input, as I say, because the players have to make a lot of decisions mm. and the captain essentially makes those decisions. But there is a bit of planning going on. The, all these senior management teams are more prevalent now than they used to be. Uh, and he's got to be ready to step in. If the captain goes off, then suddenly mm. he is pitchforked into having to make the big decisions. And therefore, 
he needs to know he's going to have to do that, I think, yeah. you know, to make a, a bit of preparation for it. But it's also, you know, giving the captain a chop out when there are so, so many demands on the time of a captain that they ha- might have mm. to be somewhere doing some media thing or whatever it might be, and you need the VC to be around to to rev people up in the rooms or, you know, make sure that things are going all right on the team level between the players themselves and to, and to be that extra voice to put in the enthusiasm, you know, there's a there's a yeah. sort of spiritual leadership aspect to it. And I think that's what Cummins has by virtue of the fact that he puts in so hard on the field. He's always a trying. Great example. Yeah. yeah, he sets that tone all the time. So I'd love to see them make that plunge and because Australia we have never had bowlers as captain Ray Lindwell captained one test match um, sort of as a fill-in Ian Johnson was a spinner in the 30s or, yeah. who captained a, a handful Benno of tests was Benno's an all-rounder you know there have been a couple of all-rounders but they've always been Rob Marsh was you know one of the great captains Australia never had yeah I mean wicket keepers have captained a, what Barry Jarman did a couple of tests and Adam Gilchrist filled in for five maybe Barry Jarman might have been one that's it so Payne's the, the only full-time wicket-keeping captain, which is not very imaginative. But so it's about a 3% help for Travis Head. He gets in at number five in this team, does he? Yes. He'll definitely be in just because of the runs he's made. He made, yeah. he made runs through the home summer. He made runs in the, in the Lions game, in the Australia A stuff. So he'll be in. Um, but, you know, he's a very uh, interesting player to watch in that he goes for it. Head-to-head, who do we think has the most dangerous... Well, let's start with opening pair. I think that's obvious, isn't it? Batting or bowling? Batting. Australia. It's got to be Australia. Australia's got the most dangerous opening one. Um, (laughs) But they've at least got one. (laughs) Uh, What about middle orders? Does England's middle order pip Australia? Massively, massively. Uh, So England, basically England are weak up the top and and stronger in the middle and Australia the other way around. Um, If England can get 80 for two in every innings, they'll win the Ashes. Mm. There we go. Like you can say that with great, like like Confucius, but they they, <laughs> they won't. <laughs> right, but Australia in the middle, it's Smith, and then we're not really sure what's happening after that. Head six, you don't know. Head will six. probably play six. Could be any one of three players. Could be Marnus. Could be Matthew Wade, who's been in amazing form. Could be Marsh. Could be Marsh if they want that extra all rounder. Um, you know, there are there are options ahoy. The one I'm intrigued about, I mean, these are sort of options that you can go either way, is, is the suggestion that I was hearing that they're going to play Siddle. I think they should, and I hope they do. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you're English whether you hope that as well. I don't know. Maybe we underestimate it. Maybe we're too fixated by pace. Th- this is my read on what's going on. The, the obvious default bowling trio is Cummins, number one test bowler in the world, AV medalist, he'll definitely be in regardless. And then Stark and Hazel would have been the other two of the big three. I don't th- think they should pick either of them for the first test. And I, I don't think this will happen, but this is my view on it, is that Stark is a, an amazing one-day bowler, potentially very close to becoming the best one-day bowler ever. He's extraordinary with the white ball because he's got a very specific plan. He knows exactly what he's out there to do. Every over that he bowls, he knows exactly what that plan is and it's a finite amount you're 10 overs you're done and in a test match he often starts to look a bit lost if things aren't going for him he just kind of comes in and bowls and hopes for the best without necessarily seem, seeming to have a clear plan and Hazelwood's been underdone and he's a brilliant bowler at his best but bowled poorly in England in 2015 what has he learned in the meantime I don't really know he hasn't had much opportunity to play here he's learned that Jason Roy probably isn't going to be a great test match but <laughs> sure yep there's that um, but, but, but he's Hazelwood, on good ground if he doesn't get picked but. <laughs> Hazelwood hasn't been hasn't looked that good in, in the warm-ups you know just hasn't been been on the spot and who has looked 
bloody good, James Pattinson and Peter Siddle. Now, those, the two of them, Siddle has taken a million wickets for Essex in the last couple of years, loves bowling in England. He bowls smart in England, and Australians traditionally don't do that. They say, oh, we'll pick Mitchell Johnson and Mitchell Stark, and they'll bowl 150Ks and get clattered because they're not doing what you need to do on the, in these conditions. Siddle does, and he'll move the ball, and he'll be accurate, and he'll get wickets, and Pattinson is a beast and has to be there if he's fit. So I'm hoping we get a real shake-up of that bowling lineup. Who do you think between England and Australia wins the battle of the strike bowlers? Unless it swings prodigiously. I mean, the better the pitches, the more you go for Australia because it has the potential for extra pace are more dangerous. And they're used to bowling on flat tracks. You know, yeah. There have been so many flat tracks in Australia. And you know, the, the interview I did with Pat Cummins for The Guardian the other day, he was talking about that specifically, about the difference between feeling like every time you bowl in England, you're, you're in it, you're a chance, and, and, and contrasting that to bowling on a day four pitch in Australia where he said, you know, it's, nothing it's 40 degrees and it's bloody hard work. And for the sake of completism, we should also ask head-to-head who has the better spinner. What well, Lion is the better spinner? I don't think anyone's arguing with that one. No, I think Lion, what, 346 test wins I mean, thereabouts? I'm just trying to think of it. It makes a huge difference to Lion, as it does to Moen, as it does in the modern game, which way ran the batsman bat mm. for these awesome Lion's record against left-handers is terrific. And obviously his record against right-handers is pretty good. And the same applies to Moen now. Mm. It's partly... DRS, LBWs, it's, it's, it, um, so that's a factor. Lyons bowled two previous Asher series in England. He's bowled well here. He likes the conditions. He's got so many weapons. He should, if he has a half-decent series, about 11 or 12 wickets away, he'll go past Dennis Lilly's 355, and that would leave him the third most prolific Australian wicket-taker behind McGrath and Warren. So, remarkably, he's still kind of underrated considering those numbers, but he's an exceptional bowler. But Moen's numbers are staggering too, because I think there's only Derek Underwood, Graham Swan, possibly Jim Laker. I can't remember whether he's gone past the great Jim Laker, but he's right up there. You know, he's number three or four in English spinners, which he would have never countenanced when he started. We should... Also note that this is the first match in the World Test Championship. Does anyone care about the World Test Championship yet? Not, not yet, but probably later, once, once they might be in it. You know, it's, it's very much, you know, India loved one-day cricket after they won a World Cup in yeah. 83 and, and uh, T20 cricket after they won in 07. And, you know, Australia, were all, we were very much like, oh, whatever, World Cup, no biggie, as soon as we got knocked out. <laughs> so <laughs> things, things tend to depend. The teams who are in it will certainly care very much about yeah. it. And the rest will say, ah, oh, Mickey Mouse competition, <laughs> garbage, whatever, doesn't matter. <laughs> Two years, as if you can tell. Before we move on, a word on Alex Carey, who didn't get picked, but did score 78 to help Sussex beat Somerset in the T20 Blast this week. Mm. Carey was actually still at Australia's Ashes camp in Hampshire until Thursday night. On Friday, he was released to Sussex. On Saturday, he had to fly to Geneva at 8 o'clock in the morning to get his visa stamped, then back to Sussex, and then straight off to Taunton. And I read that and thought, Mm. Jeff, that sounds like one of your itineraries. (laughs) The the classic Geneva to Taunton (laughs) leg. Many fellow travellers on that one, done it it many times. People, it's interesting how surprised people were that Carey's not in the Ashes squad. He doesn't have a great body of work with the Red Bull. He was a surprise in how well he played during the World Cup. You know, he's he's been a promising player for, for a while without necessarily being... Um, one absolutely demanding a spot and even a couple of games before the World Cup started he hadn't made a 50 in that format and he tried opening the batting in one day cricket back in January and that had gone really poorly so 
it wasn't even a, a lock that he was going to be in the World Cup squad necessarily. And then suddenly, as soon as he plays a few good games, everyone says, well, obviously you must be picking Kerry. They're mad if they don't pick Kerry. Um, I'm not sure that they are mad. He, he's Whether he was going to succeed in a test match with the ball moving around um, is, is very much up for question. Here's what else caught our eye this week. Uh-huh. T20 Blast. We have to mention Sunday's Worcestershire versus Durham game at New Road because Martin Guptill scored 86 from 31 balls en route to Worcestershire's nine-wicket victory. He also smashed a window. So we're really very happy for him after his terrible World Cup. Yeah, saved it for just the right time, didn't he? <laughs> in other Blast news, Tom Curran took a hat-trick, Joffre Archer featured in a tied game, and Baba Razam has also been showing off his flair. Vic, you reported, I believe, that ticket sales are up. Yes. Well, I'll tell you why I I know that, because I got sent an email, not from the ECB, of course, but from a joint email from Surrey and Lancashire. I don't know why the ECB didn't send it, telling us that, you know, ticket sales are rocketing through the roof. Yeah, and the international players are clearly putting on a great show. Show? A great shoe? They're also putting on some great shoes with all the World Cup money. Some of them two great shoes. There are several things on this, but I don't want to get too much on the hobby horse. But A, sales are up. Fantastic. B, they're filters out of Australia. The, the great model that we're trying to follow, which is the Big Bash, they are just contracting a little bit. They're reducing the size of it. Not uh, the number of games, not, but the duration. OK. So the Blast, which was, you know, dismissed as secondary and will be looked at as secondary next year because so much effort and mm. money is going into the 100 that they'll have to, you know, spend millions, literally, on the 100 to try and get it to supersede the blast, which is the secondary Uh. short-form competition. Last episode, we announced that Australia's women would be keeping the Ashes. Today, we can confirm that they have taken the series and also made off with most of England's remaining dignity. The first two T20s have been crushing victories for the tourists, including the highest ever women's T20 score for their captain, Meg Lanning, 133 off 63 balls. Jeff, you were at those games, along with hundreds of impressionable young England fans. Do you feel any guilt that your team might have made a lot of (laughs) little girls cry. (laughs) Uh, I enjoyed it very much. Um, Well, they signed a lot of autographs for those little England girls and and boys, um, which which is one of the the nice things down at Canterbury as well in in the one-day game there where Elise Perry took seven for 22 and pulled England out for about five. Um, You know, lots of of people queuing up to meet the Australian players. So the partiality seems to be set aside when it's time to get autographs. So that part is nice. I mean, how could you complain? You've watched Meg Lanning make the highest score in the history of the format. She nearly took out one of the cameramen with a straight six. She hit seven sixes overall. And she's been very much not at her best the last couple of years. She had a shoulder injury in 2017, struggled through the World Cup, basically batting with one arm. It was painful to watch, really. Had surgery, missed about a year, and then just hasn't been the same since she came back. Hasn't had that menace of old, where she was clearly the best player in the world for some years. Um, She'd slipped back, and Perry had had come up to take that mantle, really. And this was the first time I've seen Lanning look like she has of old where she puts the code in for god mode and just does whatever she wants and that's what she did it was incredible to watch how big a deal is it how bad is it for international women's cricket that there are such gulfs in ability between the teams because it's not just between australia and england it's no. then between england and, and it's a multiple step like process West Indies. well australia and england were quite close together for most of the last 10 years um, and then there's been a, a bit of a gap to new zealand and then bigger gaps going down but 
what we've seen in this series is a, a huge gulf open up between Australia and England, so that is worrying. The Spin uncovered a great mystery this week. A listener called Stephen pointed out that while some film buffs consider the lost Orson Welles movie, The Magnificent Ambersons, the greatest lost footage in film history, there is also no surviving evidence of Robin Smith's only four overs of test bowling, which took place in the final innings of England's first test against New Zealand in 1992. Only six runs were conceded from Smith's leg spin, making him one of the most economical bowlers in England's history, but he was never thrown the ball again in his international career. And as Stephen pointed out, the game was still very much alive and England were closing in on victory at the time. So, Vic, I was wondering, firstly, who is the unlikeliest person you have ever seen bowl at international level? But also, have you ever seen Robin Smith bowl? Well, I think I probably have in county cricket. Legspin. I know it's legspin. I've seen Chris Smith, his brother, bowl a bit more. But I think I did. It's sort of fairly right. I don't think he was a vicious spinner of the ball, but it... I couldn't quote chapter and verse. And what was the other question? The Who's the unlikeliest <coughs> person you've ever seen bowl at international level? Well, it's a cross between... It's probably David Gare, who did get one test wicket, I think, which he, he had a dodgy action apart from anything else. I mean, there's the most sublime <laughs> English batsman of all time. I never, he never bowled a ball in the nets. I don't know what he tried to bowl. And I think he bowled with, as I say, a sort of bent-arm chuck. <laughs> But no one complained because he never did it in public. But I think he's got one test wicket. We'd have to check it out in a freakish circumstance. So he did do it in public once. Once, yeah. And he's got but some stats. But in a dead, hope, a dead, dead game. But we'd have to be, check it out. Yeah, I hope they can't be retroactively I mean, Cook, Alistair, taken Alistair away Cook's from him. I have had confirmation that David Gare has taken one test that's wicket. Right. And that he was a chucker. And, uh, yeah. That's the big news line. Ga- yeah, that's the news line. Gare I mean, chucked it. I may, as ever, I may be a bit late with the story, but it's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Newshound, Vic Marks. Yeah. You know that for balance, we are now going to have to invite David Gower on this episode, on this podcast uh, to refute this. As well. <laughs> <laughs> he won't. Um, I have actually found out the answer to Stephen's concern about Robin Smith's bowling, and his question was, why on earth was he bowling right. in this game? Because it wasn't declaration bowling. No, there was a match still on the line. Right? There was a match still on the line, and the answer is hidden. In Rob Smythe's uh, new book with Robin Smith. The Judge. The Judge. (laughs) Robin Smith did talk about it in that book. Uh, He said that they were struggling to take wickets as they battled to win the game. And so his captain, Graham Gooch, had decided it was time for something completely different, as they say in Monty Python. Uh, And Martin Crowe, who was at the crease, was someone that Smith had formed a close friendship with over the years. He was in the middle of a rearguard innings. Uh, So Gooch walked up to Smith, who thought he was going to talk to him about field placings, and told him to warm up, which he did. For the next few overs, he says, I started loosening my shoulders in a really exaggerated way, and Crowey kept looking quizzically at me. What are you doing, mate? I'm bowling in a minute, and if I get you out, China, I'll phone you every day for a year to remind you. Uh, And apparently when he went on to bowl, uh, Martin Crowe treated him with great respect. He says, it was like I was Shane Warne and Abdul Qadir rolled into one. (laughs) Almost every ball was met with a perfect forward defensive. So that's lovely. He didn't play a single attacking stroke off him. Apparently Smith was taken off after four overs and retired with an economy rate of 1.5. Mystery solved. And finally, Vic, we couldn't have you on the show without talking to you about your book. Quite right. Yes, I absolutely. Have a copy here. 
The Ultimate One Day Cricket that Match one. <laughs> by Vic Marks and Robin Drake. Your chance to captain England in the first cricket adventure game published in 1988. And surprisingly hard to get hold of a copy, this one is the treasured possession of our producer, other Jeff, who credits it as being the first cricket book he ever read. Vic, it's your book, so <laughs> yes. please can we give it a go to see if it's any good. We've what, picked now? A, we, yep, we've picked a section. Jeff, you are going to be batting against Abdul Qadir. Mm. Jeff, if um, if this goes wrong, then England will win the Ashes. Okay. So no pressure on you there. Sure. Uh, Vic, would you like to read well, us? Uh, the score is 111 for three. You're batting, it seems. This is uh, so long since I've seen it. Yikes. You notice that Kadir, he's an ancient Pakistani legacy. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm very familiar with Abdul Kadir. <laughs> played for Carlton uh, very memorably one yeah. in, in Melbourne. Runs up to the wicket, a little wider of the crease for the last delivery of the over. The mm. ball is tossed higher than the previous three, and it's wide of the off stump. It appears to be full in length. Do you attempt a full-blooded cover drive or settle for a forward defensive shot? I think he's bowling a wrong one, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the, the forward defence. That means you've turned to page 52. OK. <laughs> what happens on page 52? Uh, so it's, it's, he's, he's so good. This is Kadir's googly, <laughs> we call it. And with a mixture of bat and pad, your forward defensive shot smothers the ball. You survive. Aww. Which may not have been the case with the glorious free-flowing Australian cover drive. Exactly. <laughs> Would have been through the gate, the classic Kadir move, and into the timbers. Jeff's done it. He's retained the ashes for Australia still right there. Uh, well, see, well, it's going to be that easy. <laughs> 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 it's just about making good decisions. Vic. Well, there's something nasty about that because on my test debut, I was playing so well my first innings against Kadir, and he he bowled this loopy thing. <laughs> this is where it comes from, I suspect, just outside off stump, just before T at Headingley. I just saw it there, and I thought, oh, Jam, I've made it to T, <laughs> <laughs> which was my goal, first goal. So I. I shouldered arms majestically and it hit middle and off. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you worked out those feelings in your Choose Your Own Adventure book. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, I must have done. Well, subconsciously. subconsciously. Therapy. Yeah. I, I suspect that was fairly conscious, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, maybe. <laughs> it, seemed, it seemed a very um, matching description between the yeah. two deliveries. Yeah, I mean, there's hubris there. If you go for the cover drive against Abdul Qadir, yeah. you don't deserve to stay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we could also mention your new book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> original Spin. Uh, there's obviously a lot of insight into the that famous Somerset dressing room that you were in, and you talk about some of the biggest characters the game has ever seen. My major observation um, in this book is that you look great with a beard. What made you get rid of it? Oh, I wasn't very good at beard maintenance. <laughs> Unlike Jeff here. <laughs> As you can see, if you look at the back of the book, you can sense that beard maintenance is just not very good. So that I had it for about a year or so. I grew it in Australia, actually. I didn't know anyone there, so if I looked an idiot, <laughs> who cares? I'm looking at this picture on the back of the book. You do not look like an idiot. That is, that's a nice beard. Yeah, but it's, you can tell also that it's due some maintenance. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, that was the days before beard oil and, mm. you know, hipster grooming. So yeah, I didn't do any of that, actually. You were before your time. But I had it for about a year, I guess. Uh, well, will you come back on another episode and talk to me more about the book, please? Oh, all right, Emma. <laughs> Thanks.
thanks. In that case, I can say goodbye to you now. Uh, goodbye to our guests, Vic Marks, Jeff Lemon. But you can follow their thoughts and insight on the first Ashes Test daily in The Guardian or on The Guardian's website. And we'll be back after the Edgbaston Test with another episode of The Spin with guests from both camps. If there's something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can get in touch with us anytime. Tweet me at m underscore john or email us at thespin at theguardian.com. Until next time, goodbye. The Spin is supported by NatWest. To find out about how NatWest is making it easier for everyone to get involved in cricket, search NatWest Cricket.